Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week I'm with Prue Leith to talk about her new book, Bliss on Toast, which zhuzhes up the simplest of pleasures into the most delicious meals. The rule about leftovers is use them quickly while they're fresh and delicious. And you know, we all say that the, the dinner party food tastes better when it's cold and you're doing the washing up and you start eating, eating what's left in the pan. It always tastes better. Her journey in food makes her look like a gourmet version of the Bisto Kid, sniffing her way from her Michelin-starred restaurant in London's starched 60s through taking on the catering at British Rail to Leith's School of Food and Wine and then after 12 cookbooks to Bake Off. Oh, and she's written seven novels. I asked her to put her novelist hat on and take me back to the Paris of the late 50s where she was an au pair and asked that young woman what she thinks of her latest book. That's a very good question. Um... First of all, I think she'd been absolutely astonished because um, at the time, all I wanted to do was be a restaurateur. It hadn't occurred to me at the time that I would want to write cookery books. I had always written stuff, but not about food. And um, so I think the very thought of any book at all about food would be astonishing. What I... um, what I think I would have, even in those days, would have welcomed is the idea of really simple food, um, beautifully treated. Because right at the start, what got me into the idea that food was important was in France when I was au pair. And the woman I worked for, the madame of the house, um, treated food so seriously. She bought it the, She bought the best she could in the right shops, you know, she'd go to three different shops for the bread, croissant in one, baguette in another, um, cake in a third, when she could have bought them all in one shop, but she always went for the best. And then when she cooked it, she was very careful about it, and she cooked with a great deal of attention and love and simplicity. And refused to let you cook for the kids. Yeah, because, well, absolutely, because she, I spoke English, and for her that was a guarantee that I'd ruined the food. And she's probably right. I mean, I would have, because I knew nothing about food. Well, we'll talk a little bit about your background in, in your, your growing up in, in Johannesburg <clears throat> in South Africa. But I just want to go into that world of 1950s. I mean, you know, I, I'm still thinking of Audrey Hepburn. But what was it like for you? as a really young woman, straight from South Africa, wasn't it? And it suddenly arriving in Paris. You were at the Sorbonne? I was at the Sorbonne, yes. The chief thing that I found absolutely remarkable, and this, this will sound ridiculous to anybody growing up today, is that because I'd been brought up in apartheid South Africa, which was an iniquitous um, regime, where black and white just did not mix. I mean, you had uh, white people had black servants, but they never shook their hands. I mean, uh, my family was fairly liberal, in fact, very liberal. My mother campaigned against apartheid, which meant that I could, uh, my, uh, you know, I could hug my nanny, and and I absolutely remember how. Um, Delicious it was to be held against her. She wore she wore a, a, a white um, apron, and it had sort of grippier lace um, um, shoulder frills, you know. And I loved it if I could snuggle into her neck, but if I got the starchy frills, it was really scratchy. So I remember being hugged and kissed by my black nanny. Yeah. 
um, and, and, and kissing her. But it also meant that you weren't able to cook. Your black servants and your black yeah. cooks did yeah. all the cooking yeah. for you. Did you go into the kitchen with them? Hardly ever. I remember once going in to try to make jam tarts and the, and the cook, who's a wonderful cook, actually. I had no idea he was such a good cook. I just ate beautiful food all the time, but I never thought there was any skill involved with it. Nobody ever said, you know, Charlie has been trained as a, you know, as a French chef in a posh restaurant. Yeah. Um, he just, you know, lovely food came on the table and I just took it for granted. And when I was making jam tarts, um, I de- Charlie never corrected me or said, look, that's not how to roll the pastry or this is what you do. He just went around clearing up after me and I just accepted yeah. that. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just awful. So the point about Paris, when I got to Paris, there was this sudden amazing freedom. I mean, I, was, I would be sitting in the... I remember the first time this happened. I was sitting in the Boule Miche, the, you know, the Boulevard Saint-Michel, which is full of students because it's on the left bank. And there lots of cafes on the, on the street. And I was sitting with a, a friend, um, a, a girl, actually a South African girl that I'd met there. And suddenly these two... Algerian guys came and slid into the other two tables and started chatting us up. And I was sort of both a little bit frightened because I'd never had any social interaction with a black young man. And, um, and I remember my astonishment that we, we, we'd just come out of a lecture about Sartre. Yeah. So there we were discussing existentialism <laughs> with a young black guy, or two young black guys. And I... I you know, it sounds the most racist thing to say, but I was brought up without, although my mother would, and father would never have said this, um, because they were liber- very liberal, and my mother, she was an actress, and she campaigned to get, um, to be ha- ha- allowed to have black people into her audiences, yeah. Yeah. which wasn't allowed. I mean, it was an explosion into a kind of a technicolour version of life, wasn't it, in Paris? Yes, it was. And then music. I mean, you see, I, my family weren't musical at all, and so I'd never heard... i never heard Mozart. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. It was like sort of an angel came down from heaven, you know. I, I just... It was yeah. astonishing. I went, to, I went to hear Edith Piaf live. Oh, she was very old in that. She was a tiny little figure, because we were right up in the gods, yes. you know, the cheap student seats. And she was about half a mile away down on the stage, this tiny thing. But to think that I was in the same theatre as Edith Piaf was amazing. amazing. And it's those sort of visceral memories, isn't it, that kind of uh, coalesce. Uh, and when you're, you're having this new experience of food at home with your au pair family... And you're yeah. seeing stuff on the streets. It all comes together, doesn't it? And it sort of yeah. explodes this idea. The thing that I love is always the simplicity, the combination of good ingredients, not too messed around. I mean, I remember thinking that uh, they're not very good anymore, I must say, because the quality of the bread in Paris uh, or in France generally has, is not as good as it used to be, except obviously if you um, there are artisan bakers and so on, you can get great bread. But... Ham sandwich was the most divine thing because it was really crusty, fresh. The French never eat bread the second day. You know, it's always toasted as a tartine. You always have very, very fresh bread. So crusty on the outside, soft in the middle, very good butter. All the French butter was always excellent and, and delicious ham. And that was it. And 
And that was it. There was no mustard on it, just butter, ham and bread. God, it was gorgeous. I remember it. Well, I was also a 17-year-old au pair on the Boulevard Saint-Germain. And I did a course (laughs) at the Sorbonne. I wasn't studying existentialism at the Sorbonne, but I was having pretty much the same experience. Uh, No, I'm sure you were probably doing exactly the same course as I was. Um, But you moved from France to England uh, which seems a kind of an odd thing to do when you've just experienced this explosion of food. Not really, because my um, my family's um, I had lived in England between the ages of six to nine, and we'd live with 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 a family that were very close to my, my mother's best friend and 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 partner in the theatre, and. Uh, so the natural thing was to go to London because I could be looked after a bit yeah. and because I'd have friends. And and we also had lots of other friends in, in, in England. And our connections, because of, partly because of my mother's theatre, but also because my father was employed by ICI. So, the, you know, there were lots of connections in, in mm-hmm. London. And um, so that was the natural place to go, and especially. And I came to London mainly because I could stay with them, and I yeah. could, it, I could live for free, which I couldn't do in Paris. But it was there that you decided to do a cordon bleu course. Was that directly as a result of what you had felt about this awakening in France? Yeah, absolutely direct. I mean, I had gone thinking that I'd gone to Paris because I thought I'd end up a. I wanted to be a, a translator for the. United Nations or something, so I could travel all over the world. Me too. And that was my little plan. But when I got to Paris and fell in love with food and realised that, and realised, frankly, that um, that it was a proper profession and that, you know, you could you could learn it. I mean, I, I don't know what I thought. I just didn't think about cooks. I just thought they were, you know, rather like street sweepers. They were just there. And um, so, uh, so as soon as I realised that there were courses... So I tried to get into the Cordon Bleu in Paris, but it was much too expensive. And um, so then I thought, well, if I come to England, I can live with um, the Krugers and I can um, and I can learn to cook. And because I wanted a restaurant by then, you know, I, I was I wanted a sort of a restaurant like the ones in Paris, you know, which was sort of dives underground. Um, where lots of students went with um, check tablecloths and and very cheap food, but wonderful food, you know, big cassoulets and yes. th- things like that. And um, but of course, you can't make any money in that kind of restaurant. So well, it changed course. my mind. Well, of course, and and in fact, well, we're going to come to your uh, a story about Leith's restaurant, which you opened in 1969, and and which lasted until 1995, a little bit later, in your second food moment. But first of all, in your first food moment, let's just revisit Johannesburg to give us an idea of how you felt about food. Um, you'd never cooked, as you said. Um, you were going shopping in the city with your mother for school uniform when you discovered this first food moment, the anchovy toast with pear pickle, <laughs> which you've put in your book, uh, Bliss on Toast. Tell us about that moment. Well, it's ridiculous. Anchovy toast was something, I don't know whether it was the same in England, but it was tremendously popular at one time. And we often had it in the morning with a cup of coffee or, you know, for a little snack, rather like people have toast on mar- and Marmite. <laughs> and, um, and it's just toast. It's just buttered toast, hot, with a little bit of squashed anchovies, really, on top. And um, I love the stuff. And we went to the first 
Italian cafe that had opened in. Um, well, Italian in the sense that it had an Italian gaggia um, yes. coffee machine, you know, which hissed and, and had those. I remember that it had those sort of green, heavy porcelain cups upside down on top of the gadget machine. Do you remember? I and do. it made the most delicious coffee. And so I hated shopping and, and my mother, and especially buying school uniforms, which was all boring grey jumpers, grey socks. And, uh. and so when I got through the school u- uniform shop, then my mama would take me to this um, cafe for for a cup of coffee. And actually, I usually had sort of chocolate malted milk or something, but it was like a sort of um, cross between an American um, milk bar and an Italian coffee place. And the, uh, we would have anchovy toast. And I was sitting there between my mum and a total stranger on my right. And he was eating anchovy toast and his plate of anchovy toast was on my right. And and I was talking to my mum and I absentmindedly picked up a piece of his toast and put it, I got it into my mouth in about halfway down my throat, but still, I was still holding it when I realised what I'd done. And I pulled it out again and turned to him and said, I'm so sorry, I said, offering it to him, giving it Oh, give it back to him or having having breathed all over it. <laughs> and he said very dryly, I think you should keep it now. <laughs> and feel and free. by that time, you must have experienced that wonderful, wonderful sort of taste of anchovies. I mean, yeah. South Africa has always been a wonderful place for food. It certainly is now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, was that your experience? Were you uh, every day having one- amazing food? Well, we did have very good food, mainly because Charlie was such a good cook. Uh, my mother was a terrible cook. She couldn't cook anything. I remember her making marmalade and burning it and the whole house smelling of sort of burnt marmalade. For, <laughs> even the curtains smelt of caramel, you know. Um, but out on the she, streets, I meant, you know, when you're sort of walking around, was the sort of the vibe of, of, a, of a sort of an abundance of good food? Well, no, I wouldn't say there was an abundance, but we did have, uh, because the ingredients were good, I mean, the, 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 the main street food in South Africa probably still is, is um, barbecued maize, corn on the cob, mm. mealies, and, and fresh mealies barbecued. There's nothing like and it. And the smell of it is divine. And if you put a bit of salt and butter on, it's just fantastic. So that, and then we were quite influenced by the Americans. I remember we had, um, there was a drive-in, Doll, it was called the Doll's House, and it was a, a, a drive-in cafe with um, servitors on um, roller skates. And they were fantastically quick at bringing you, you know, we, if we went to the movies or we were out on a treat of any kind, we always begged to go to the Doll's House. And they made wonderful burgers with really good meat and 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 I remember a little first time I'd ever seen cherry tomatoes. They would put in the box a, a, a cherry tomato and a lettuce leaf or something, plus a really good burger. And we would eat, and uh, you know I'd always want you know really disgusting things like brown cow. Brown cow is fifty um, percent Coca Cola and fifty percent milk, okay. <laughs> or milkshake, I think. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, it, 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 I I'd adored this, and I always wanted a big one. And my parents was gave me a small one. They they thought this Im, immodest American business of having huge buckets of drink was vulgar. So 
but I never got a double one. Very, very different to the feeling on the streets of London. When you first came to London in 1960, was it? What yeah. did you think of the food on the street there? Well, I was quite interested that people ate roasted chestnuts, which I thought were the most boring things ever. I still don't think much of them. They smell lovely, but they were so difficult to eat and, and too hot to hold and then didn't taste great. Yeah, the street food wasn't particularly good when I came to London, but, but none of the food was. You know, hotel food, smart hotel food was so boring. Every single hotel, all the posh restaurants were in hotels. There were very few owner-run, um, you know, independent um, uh, restaurants in the smart end of, town, of, of London. And so, or the smart end of eating, you know, the gastronomic end, there was just nothing. They were all in hotels and they were very, you know, they were white tablecloths down to the ground, beautifully starched linen and very smart waiters, most of them who were really snobbish. And if you were a student or or young, they looked down their noses at you if you ordered the house wine, for example. Or um, they were, or if you came in with a backpack, you practically weren't allowed in, you know. So th- they were really snobbish, um, and the food was awful. Yeah. It was very often, um, it was sort of post-war still, though. it was still as if it was austerity. Um, because, I mean, we're talking about um, 1959, um, 60, uh, they would still be, um, they would be doing Escoffier, but on the cheap, without the, you know, Escoffier could do amazingly elaborate and complicated dishes because he had very cheap labour. Mm. By 1960, the cheap labour had gone, but the big machines hadn't yet arrived. So, for example, Escoffier would push a a sauce or a soup through a muslin cloth and it would take two commie chefs, one squeezing one end and one twisting the other, to push the, the, the liquid through a cloth or a very fine sieve, yeah. but by hand. Whereas now, of course, you'd put it in a liquidizer and just blend it until it's as smooth and shiny as you want. Yeah. So we didn't have the machines, but we had... But they still had the aspirations. So they had all these dishes which were not well made and they were often cooked the day before and you got meat that had been cooked the day before and then sliced and heated up in gravy. There was this thing that I always called sauce industrielle, which was basically brown gravy. And it went on everything. You know, it went on the pheasant, it went on the roast beef, it was the gravy for anything. Yeah. And so it, it wasn't until the Nouvelle Cuisine revolution that, it, that British cooking started to improve. That was the 1980s, but by that or time... Or 70s, 1970s. 1970s, yes, it sort of started, but 1980s, yeah. it really changed London's yeah, food scene. Yeah, yeah. But you started in 1969 with Leith's Restaurant. Yeah, um, I, I mean, that, that must have been a huge influence in the food scene at that time. Can you remember what it was like? Uh, yes, I can. I can. I mean, I think that the, my main feeling about the um, food at that time was that Food in people's houses, especially smart houses, you know, country houses, was still very good because it relied on, you know, pheasants from the from the shoots and the local venison and 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 the beef came off, you know, even if you weren't in a sort of state owner, if you just lived in the country, the the 
the meat would come from the yeah. local farm and it would all be grass-fed beef and, and really good lamb and, and so on. There was, there was none of the sort of factory-produced um, food. So the ingredients were good. And so cooking, really, I mean, you, I think we owe a lot to the, to the Cordon Bleu school because the Cordon Bleu had always been teaching the servants of the rich how to yeah. cook. And that filtered down to everybody who was aspirational. All the middle classes wanted to go to the Cordon Bleu to learn how to cook. And I went to the Cordon Bleu. And so when I opened my restaurant... What I wanted was the kind of um, straightforward, quite simple, but French-based in the sense of French techniques and and um, and French respect for you know not to, not to, you know if they made a sauce there was never a lot of flour in it it would be more like whisking butter in it to you know Bermonte kind of so that's what you were trying to bring to Leith's. Yeah, it was country house cooking is what I felt I was doing. And when I went and did a, I did a week in, in Hong Kong in the 80s, um, it was called Leith's at the Mandarin Hotel. And we did, and Leith's at the Mandarin was my restaurant chef and me and a few others went and did what we did there. And what we would, we called it English country house cooking because that's what we did. Yeah. Pretty simple. I mean, it's interesting because you've used the word aspiration a couple of times now. Mm. Um, the French cooking that you discovered as a teenager is not about aspiration. It is about uh, a story of France that goes back hundreds of years. Mm. Mm. I've always thought that good food in Britain is absolutely about aspiration and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think there's a, yeah. a power behind aspiration. If people want to cook because it's more cool to be able to cook, well, great. Yeah. That that helps us all. And indeed, certainly with yeah. young people wanting to learn to cook, great, aspire to be cool and cook well. But... Actually, the, your second food moment is, is not aspirational at all. It's, it's a, from a staff lunch at Leith's, and it's mozzarella in carrozza. It's a very oh, basic, God. very simple, very unstatusy food moment. Tell us about how that fits into this Michelin-starred restaurant that you ran for so many years at such an important time in British food history. We never did uh, mozzarella in carrozza in, at, at Leith's restaurant. I don't know why, because I... It would have been a great... Well, exactly. Uh, it would have been a great... But the trouble is it's quite a hefty, delicious, irresistible... If you had it as a first course, you wouldn't be able to eat anything else, really. And I sort of feel a cheese toasty in a, in a smart evening restaurant wouldn't be what people want for their main course. You know, cheese is a bit indigestible. I, I don't think it would have worked. But it never occurred to me anyway. And the reason I put that in as, as my moment was because... Again, it's such a simple thing, good cheese in good bread. But it's a, it's a, it's a fried toasty. <laughs> That's all it is. And we put it on the front of um, Bliss on Toast, uh, my new cookbook, because we are, I asked everybody to look at all the pictures. There are 75 pictures of things on toast uh, or in toast, as, as this is. Um, and just tell me which one made their mouth water the most. And it was absolutely unanimous, the, the cheese toasty. So mozzarella and carrozza. I thought some people would say, choose a really colourful, um, beautiful, stacked, sort of open sandwich kind of toast that, that 
would, would be wonderfully colourful and, and fresh-looking and delicious. No, what they wanted was cheese toast. Well, it's nostalgia, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, and that's yeah. the way to kind of promote food or to talk mm-hmm. about food. It's through the, the memories, isn't yeah. it? And that, I mean, we call it, you know, it's called mozzarella and carrozza because it, it, the best ones are made with, mo- with really good mozzarella. And it's an Italian um, street food, if you like. And, and that has been going on for centuries. I mean, that's not a new inve- invention. And you're quite right that the, Fr- the French and the Italians, in fact, the Europeans generally, look to their history and their mum's cooking and their granny's cooking and, their, and, and uh, far more than the British do. And I, I'd never thought of it, but you're right. British cooking... British, and another good thing about the aspirational side is that as people become more interested in the environment and in... in um, the right thing to do, if you like. A lot of it is idealistic. Um, they want to buy um, um, organic vegetables from the local market, not only because they are fresher and taste better or they, f- they think they are more nutritional or something, it's also because they think it's right, yeah. you know, that they're supporting farmers yeah. and that they're not... Um, raping the planet absolutely and your third food moment is very much about something that is hugely important to saving the planet which is using leftovers in fact a lot of the book really is about using leftovers isn't it and and i found it very interesting and quite a bit upsetting really that you got a little bit of backlash on twitter when you were on saturday kitchen recently because people (laughs) wanted more they wanted more prue they wanted more pizzazz whereas you're actually talking about leftovers uh you know the figs blue cheese thyme and honey on bloomer oh my goodness but actually you know what you're talking about is use what's in the fridge and do something delicious with it it's incredibly important not to waste isn't it well it is and i i can't bear um, wasting anything and i think the rule about leftovers is use them quickly while wow, they're fresh and delicious. And you know, we all say that the, the dinner party food tastes better when it's cold and you're doing the washing always. up and you start eating, eating what's left in the pan. It always tastes better. <laughs> Leftovers seem to be more delicious than, than the first time round, but only if they're really fresh. And um, so I'd say we, you, you, know, you have to use leftovers straight away. And I'm just too mean and too Scottish in origin to ever throw anything away. So that's really how Bliss and Onto started, because we were in lockdown. I was cooking for far too many people, because although there was only me and John, I find it really difficult to cook for two. I mean, if you're going to, do, if you're going to cook something... I, I, so I was always make more, and then I would be freezing it for, you know, for later... Freezing half of it, but then I started thinking, well, you know, I'll just keep it and put it on toast. And I, I, I actually do believe that almost everything tastes better on toast than it did <laughs> before it went on the toast. You without were, the toast, you've been very involved in uh, campaigning for better food in schools and cooking skills. I mean, it seems to me that these very, very simple recipes uh, and this idea of always just looking in the back of the fridge. Just being inventive, being creative with what you've got. Put it on some toes. It's fun. It's fun and it's easy and it's cheap. How do you take that idea into schools, which is so much about, you know, if they are having cooking lessons, it's all about components. It's about proteins and carbohydrates and making it so boring. I know, it's crazy because... uh, 
you know, they, they do have a curriculum, they do have to get through all these things, but you can do it. You know, if you think of something on toast, it, it, that is exactly what it is. It's not a mozzarella in carrozza, I have to say. That is not a balanced <laughs> meal. <laughs> but, but if you have... A nice a, treat. If you have a, um, a, the carbohydrate in the bottom in the, in the sense of a piece of focaccia or something, and then you have your, your uh, sort of veg and avocado and, and salad-y stuff and then some kind of protein, uh, uh, salmon or, or, um, or meat or fish or anything on top, and then a, a little drizzle of, of dressing of some kind, that's an extremely balanced and, he- and healthy meal and it looks good and it's easy to assemble. And I didn't know about any um, grief I got on Twitter because I try not <laughs> not to have anything to do with Twitter. Um, but but it is interesting, isn't it? It's, it's still that sort of expectation that that people like you should only be talking about great food, status food, or fabulous bakes on you know Bake Off, or it's got to be. It's sort of extraordinary food, where it's actually the ordinary food, everyday food that we all need to know how to put together. Well, yes, but the thing about Bliss on Toast is that some of it is dinner party food. I don't think dinner parties are like they used to be. You know, I find a formal dinner party quite a stressful thing. You've got to get the house looking perfect and all the table laying and the wines right and everything else. That sort of stuff for the younger generation is, is, you know, we might do it once in a blue moon. But what's wrong with sort of sharing platters of something absolutely delicious? And it looks good. You can, you know, it's easy to assemble and, you know, your friends can help you and you put your absolutely. bliss on toast together. It's, it's a lot more fun. Well, exactly. But which would you prefer? One of those dinner party bliss on toasts or your bubble and squeak with hollandaise on fried bread, which is your fourth food moment. (laughs) You know, one of the lovely things about this recipe, if you can call it a recipe, because it's just more leftovers, isn't it, put on bread, is its old fashioned nursery food, as you say. Well, I think I, I think a good bubble and squeak has everything. It has texture because the you know if you if you fried it right, the potatoes will have a little bit of um, you know they'll have a little of that buttery crunch in it. If the bread's good, um, if the cabbage is fresh, I mean, what you don't want is four day old um, cabbage that's been sitting in the back of the fridge, chucked into it. You, you have to have sort of fresh ingredients, and who doesn't like a good bubble and squeak? <laughs> Now, I have to um, tell you that I've spent the last six months doing the Leith's Essential online course. I'm one of the first to do the app. And I'm just about to go into the assessment, which I'm absolutely terrified about. Oh, I'm so impressed with you. Well done. Well, I've been cooking all my life and, you know, really enjoyed cooking. But I have to say that, firstly, it's taught me a lot of skills. But secondly, and most importantly for me, it's taken me right back to the way that my parents cooked. My mother uh, learnt to to cook back in the 19, what would have been early 50s, I suppose. And she taught my father, who was a real foodie. And so I've grown up in a house of flashing knife skills and (laughs) mise en place. Now you can do all that? I dumped that the minute I left home, of course. But that hollandaise sauce that um, that you talk about in the bubble and squeak was one of those ta-da moments. I, I hadn't actually managed to make the emulsion very well, but I put it in the fridge afterwards and I had some friends over for the weekend and I put some on their poached eggs on the, on the Saturday morning. The place was absolutely silenced by this hollandaise. <laughs> the Leafs course is really all about skills 
skills, isn't it? Mm. Why mm. are mm. skills so important? Why is, is the least school of, of food and wine still something so important? Well, I think most people who can't cook think they can't cook because they, they see chefs showing off on telly and they just think, I'll never be able to do that. And when they learn that actually none of these things are difficult to learn and they are hugely satisfying, the, the feeling of confidence and that of, of, if you know how to use your knife and it works, then suddenly you think, oh, this is quite fun. This is not something nervous to make you nervous. So it's, it's really about building confidence and enthusiasm for the subject. And I must say, Leeds is now 48 years old, and I still think it's... A fa- I, mean, I can say this now because I don't own it anymore. It is the most fantastic school. And I never believed we could go into online teaching and it be such a success. But actually, it's a perfect medium because you can get a tutor who tells you exactly what you're doing right and wrong, and, who, you know, it, it just works. So I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you. You're in your 80s now, Prue. You feel like you're just as you've got more energy than you've ever had. What are your plans for the rest of this decade? Oh, the rest of the decade, I don't know. I'd probably be under the sod for most of the rest of the decade. But for the next year, I'm doing a one woman show, which is so just suits my ego. You know, I can go and show off to lots of people in the theatre. And so I'm doing a one-woman show next spring all over Britain, just talking and chatting and answering questions, and a little bit of film and old, you know, stuff going on behind me. Um, And then I'm doing that in America in the autumn, and in between I'm doing Bake Off, of course, and also the Great American Baking Show, which is the same thing, only with American um, contestants. So next year will be a very busy year. and, you know, I'll probably write another cookbook and I don't know what I'll do. <laughs> but I shall certainly have fun. And, um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, you talk about my energy. I mean, that's just a matter of luck, I, you know. I, I, I'm very sort of forward thinking and I never look back and scratch my head and say that was a disaster. I just think, well, what will I do next? Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Smith, where you can keep up with my adventures in cookery with Leeds Online. Check the show notes and on Instagram for full details of how to get cooking books discounts on that Leeds cookery course. And I'll see you next week. Bye.